You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fair Game podcast, where we're talking all things surrounding our state and county fairs. Today, we're talking to the director of the Kittitas Valley Event Center, where every September they host the Kittitas County Fair and Ellensburg Rodeo. She's one of the young all-stars in our industry. Folks, this is Miss Katie Porterfield. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you, and good morning. Good morning to you. I'm glad you could come on today. How about we start off with a little bit of background on your fair? When does it run? What's the attendance, etc.? So we are a five-day fair that traditionally runs over Labor Day weekend every year, and we have about a 65,000-person attendance for our fair and rodeo, which are both actually ran by separate um, uh, boards and run simultaneously together in one partnership for this great, awesome event that's been running since um, 1923. That's a good long time to be running a fair. You're coming up on your centennial here soon. Yes, the rodeo is. The fair's actually been going longer, but as a, a joint event, we've been joined together since 1923. But the fair has actually been happening um, since the late 1800s. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. Now, are you all a year-round event facility? Yes, we host at the Kittitas Valley Event Center about a thousand different events a year from, um, and that's across our all of our acres, multiple facilities running at once um, every day from small meetings to big trade shows, to equine events, uh, 4-H meetings, every everything you can think of, we, we are the stop and go for the whole community. That's impressive. You know, I was talking with Marla Calico from IFE on one of the shows that we did, and I was surprised to learn just how high a percentage of fairs actually make more revenue from their non-fair than from the actual fair activities. How does that typically fall for you guys up there in Washington? Currently, our our rentals, we um, we are pretty close to even. The fair does pretty well for us, um, but we're starting to do, as an event center side, some more self-promoted events. Um, in 2019, we started a new 4th of July event that includes a big headlining country concert. And, and it's just something for the community because we didn't have a 4th of July celebration. So we're working on expanding and utilizing um, the unique large outdoor rodeo arena that we have for kind of some bigger events like that and trying to expand our borders for, for some more revenue outside of just renting out the facilities and fair. Got it. So listen, if a new family was to move into your area and they called you up and they said, hey, we want to come to the fair, what do you recommend a day at the fair for them looks like? I would definitely recommend that they check out the historic barns um, and and all of the kids. We have an amazing livestock um, youth 4-H FFA program here. Um, the livestock auction every year is very well sought out for, but all of all of the kids and just all the activities they do throughout the day are really exciting to go and watch in our indoor arena with the, the different show rings that are all in there taking place at one time. Um, but other than that, it's it's we have a great carnival. It's a lot of fun. And you have to get tickets to the Ellensburg Rodeo too while you're there because it's just such a great rodeo event. It's one of the top 10 in the whole country. So you can spend a whole day. There is plenty to do and you probably won't get it done in one day. So you might as well come back on one of our special days and enjoy it somewhere. Now, I'm not much uh, of a rodeo person. I'm, you know, being more on the entertainment side. It's just never something I've really gotten into. You say it's one of the top 10 in the country. How in the rodeo circuit, in the rodeo world, how is that established? Who's at the top of the pile? Is it revenue? Is it attendance? What's that look like? 
You know, that's a great question. Um, there's just been different polls that I've seen come out from different of the rodeo associations, PRCA, different things like that. And understanding, yeah, the stature and size <clears throat> and attendance of the rodeos. And I, since I'm not in, since the rodeo is an outside organization for us, um, I don't know all the logistics there. I'm just really happy we get to support and partner with such a great event like that and, and make it part of, of who we are as well. So. Terrific. I, you know, I got to, there was one fair I did in Arizona where they actually had me, the way their arenas is set up, they had our game set up up at the very top on the mezzanine level of the arena. So it was the first time I'd ever actually seen a rodeo and I got to watch it like every day for five straight days. I can see why people get into it. I really can. I mean, it's quite exciting with with how fast some of these animals are moving and the the stunts and things and, and acrobatics and all the stuff that's going on with it. So it's a very impressive thing. Yes, and we have some local rodeo stars here in Ellensburg too that have gone to national finals every year. And so, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal for Ellensburg um, and the community. And then having the fair mixed with it and all of the whole family being involved on both sides of the event is just, it makes a really great weekend and not having the event this year really was hard on our community um, from both sides. And so we're really, really hoping for 2021, things are looking pretty good right now and we're making plans and, and trying to get it. We don't want another year like 2020, that's for sure. Oh, amen to that. Now you're one of, I believe, in my understanding, you're one of the younger fair managers and event directors in our industry. How did you come to get involved with the fairs and how did you end up in Ellensburg? So I love telling this story. So thank you for, for asking the question. But when I um, graduated with my ag business degree, I needed to complete an internship. Um, so I called back home to my home county and I was able to get hooked in with Cliff Munson of the Siskiyou Golden Fair in Rayrica, California, who I absolutely adore, was an amazing mentor, took me on in an internship. Um, he couldn't pay me, but he would let me park my trailer and live on the fairgrounds for free all summer while I worked as an intern. So that that really worked out well and uh, had a great camp out for the summer. Um, I learned a ton and really his with his help, he was able to get me involved um, with the industry associations. I got um, hooked in with WFA and some of the leaders in that association and then was given a scholarship opportunity to attend the IFB convention in Las Vegas which was awesome because I got to learn so much and make so many networking con connections. And then I also attended the WFA um, on another scholarship that they gave me too, um, because I was no longer an intern. I had no financial backing. So they gave me the scholarship to attend and that's where I was able to get my first job interview to come up to Washington um, for the Central Washington State Fair in Yakima. And that, um, Took a couple months, I came and visited. I, I really liked what it was all about. And then I decided to, to make the jump to Washington and came up, I worked at the Central Washington State Fair for about four years as the agriculture department manager, which was just a great time. And I just, I love agriculture so much. So that was really the heart and soul for me of getting into the fair industry to begin with. So it was the perfect start. And then when the fair manager position opened up in Ellensburg, that was my goal to get back to a small rural county fair where it was all about the kids and I could really focus on enhancing my career there. And Ellensburg's just the perfect town that really fits my personality and lifestyle with the Western way of life and ranching. It's the perfect little Western town. So I'm really happy that I've been able to uh, have this opportunity to be in this position now. 
So you're all about small town fairs. Like if the Washington State Fair called up and said, we want you to be our agriculture director, you would actually have to think about it. Yeah, I, I, I would strongly think probably not, but they have a great one as it is. Oh, I they do. want to replace her. Of, so. of course, of course. I just use them because they're, yeah. you know, an example of a big fair, but you're, you're a small town gal. That's, that's where you're at. Now, COVID aside, we'll get to all those challenges in a minute. What are some of the challenges you faced as you've come up in this industry? You know, just you deal with a lot of different personalities, of course, and a lot of ones who have been ingrained, um, you know, where they are for a long time. You know, people, fairs are so, and this is what actually makes it great too, is fairs are so interesting because people are so, um, have their heart in it so much and and really believe that, you know, that fair is their fair. And, you know, so sometimes change is hard, um, you know, especially when, even if it's for the better, but I think there's always ways to work around that and coming into new community um, that you haven't been in very long, you know, you have to guide that and guide certain conversations away and, and learn how to be tactful, but also know your people and know your audience, um, relate to them and understand who you're working with. This is a people job for sure. And so you have to be able to work and coordinate with people from all different kinds of backgrounds. So I think it's a lot of fun actually in that respect. It is. It's definitely a challenge when you're starting to figure out, you know, find your way. And I think that's the case, whether you're a, you know, a young person in the the fair planning side, whether you're an ag director, a, you know, a fair manager like you are now, or even on the entertainment side. When I remember when I first came in trying to figure out this, the market and how things worked, I wasn't, I didn't have any business background or business acumen. I was just an entertainer and yeah. I came in thinking it was business, business, business. And for, you know, November, 2009 was my first IEFE, my first convention. And I, I'm going to say for probably two years after that, maybe two and a half years, I was really focused on how do I get the booking? And I was just spinning my wheels. And then I finally shut up and started listening to people that were um, a little older than more experienced <laughs> than I was yeah, and realized was, it was all about building relationships and getting to know people. That was definitely my experience when I started at the Central Washington State Fair. Of course, coming in, you know, I had almost 100 employees under me between, you know, but the, my superintendents, my core team of who really ran the, the heart and soul of my department, you know, all of them were usually three times older than me, if not just twice as old as me. And so there was you know, a lot of, especially when you first start, you definitely don't want to step on toes or take on too much. I really found it very helpful to lean on, on those people. They, they've been involved in a long time. They really do know what they're doing. Let them take their reins. Um, don't micromanage and, and let them teach you some things. Um, I think that's a really important aspect of leadership is to, to trust the people that are working for you and they're experts in their area. So let them, let them have some of the input and make sure that, you know, it's running to where they really think is the best and then support them through that. So you had, when you were over there at Yakima, you had a hundred people working underneath you in your department. How just old, during the fair. Just during fair time. How, yep. Can I ask how old this is? I know, I'm not asking how old you are now, but how old were you at that point? I was 21 when I started there. You were 21 yeah. and you had a hundred people under you during fair time. Yes, between the different clerks and volunteers and, you know, um, yeah, there's, there's enough moving pieces. That's, that's about how many that was under me for the 10 days of fair um, 
pretty pretty close. That's but. a lot for a twenty one year old. I I remember being twenty one. It was years ago, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I would have been able to handle that kind of responsibility. Did you get? Was there friction when you came in as a young twenty one year old who's the you know the ag director? Was there friction with some of the uh, more older, experienced people? You know, there was definitely some questioning, but there wasn't too much friction. Um, I tend to be pretty laid back and, like I said, try to work with people and, and give them a chance. And, you know, after after the first year it gets under your belt, you kind of realize who really fits in your team um, and moving forward, who's going to fit the goals. And, and then you can make some changes there. But, um, you know, I was really fortunate to have just such a great team when I came in with so much talent and was really able to work on enhancing that further down the road. Sure. And I really think right now, I, I don't want to sound like when I ask these questions and, and I know I've had um, another other guests on the show who are younger fair managers who've experienced, you know, similar things. I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm in any way throwing our veterans uh, of the industry under the bus. I, Cause I, especially right now, I think it is an, there's an incredible amount of wisdom in this pandemic that, or that they can share with us during the pandemic. Um, I mean, and I don't mean like the 35 year old who's got 15 years experience. I mean, the 50, 60, 70 year old who's got 30, 40, 50 years of experience. They've been through way more than any of the rest of us have. They've seen us through swine flu, avian flu, you know, other civil unrest, 9-11, all of these sorts of crises. Do you have industry veterans right now who you look at as mentors that have helped you navigate this past year? Yes, I'd say so. Um, this past year in particular, you know, there's, I have a lot of veterans even on my fair board who have been around and we work closely together through this and that's how we got through the last year. But um, even just leaning on some of, some of my friends, my own age too, and seeing how they're handling things. But my, my network is vast and I appreciate everyone. And that it's not just, you know, veterans who've been in it a long time. Some of the new creative stuff, I had to lean on some of my younger, um, same aged peers in the industry for some of the creative things and make a mix of both. So that was really interesting, but I agree. You don't want to miss out on, on having the, the veterans knowledge there. And I'm, I'm lucky that those opportunities are out there and that I know so many. Yeah, for sure. And there, I mean, just like with anything in life, there will come a time when those people are not available to share that wisdom with us. So we need to grab onto it while we can. Yes, and um, actually what's, what's interesting, I just wanna share this point, is that we just launched um, at the Western Fairs Association Conference last week, a new program called the Career Connections Program, which is great for not only younger people in the industry, but of all ages. This is for new people who are just joining the industry or people who have been in one department maybe that want experience or knowledge of mentorship in another department, but it's very much, um, a connecting during this COVID time of not getting to be connected at and make those relationships at conventions in person and different things. There's a really unique opportunity to be involved in this career connections program, which is a um, virtual connected year long like mentorship program to help you in an area where you want to ask questions or have somebody you can lean on on a scheduled time basis. So I would encourage anybody who's new or, or wants to expand some of their knowledge and really have a connection to apply to be in that program and uh, we'll get you connected. I am part on that committee and uh, it's, it's been really fun to develop that program and that it's just launched. So we're taking applications until January 31st. Um, and that's also for service members. It's not just 
fair managers and staff. And this also gives an opportunity for staff who may not get to travel to conventions, gives them the opportunity to actually get to network with people. That's very cool. Shifting gears, talking about fairs in our communities. I kind of get the feeling from seeing fairs from all across the country. It's one of the blessings I have as an entertainer. I get to be in a lot of different communities throughout the year. But one of the things I see is there's a lot of people out there who attend our fairs and they see our fairs as, you know, five or 10 days over the summer. And then that's it. I think a lot of times they don't understand just how important a role our fairgrounds play in our communities. What um, beyond the fair, what kind of role does your event center play in your community? Well, outside of being a host of longtime community events, we, we have local clubs um, and different things that have been using our facilities for decades and decades for their annual events. And so we're very lucky and fortunate for that, that we have um, the frequented people that come in and out all the time, very familiar with our fairgrounds. We are a pillar for sure, and I'm thankful for that. But on the other side of that is we are in a unique situation to be ready for emergency response as well. Um, we are exactly centered in the state at our fairgrounds along the I-90 and um, 82 corridors. So when it comes to wildfires or anything like that, we're one of the, the top fairgrounds in the state um, location-wise to come to um, for fire camps or any of the large um, evacuations that may take place or if anything were to happen over um, on the other side of the mountains um, towards the coast, if something were to happen over there, though those people are gonna come over um, the mountain right into our little town. And so we are constantly working on being ready for emergency response um, at our fairgrounds. And like right now with COVID, we were, we were the COVID um, emergency station right when this took place for, for months. Um, the emergency management team came to our fairgrounds because we have the space to accommodate for spacing out and different things like that. And now we're setting up for to be our um, immunization clinic where we'll, that'll be stationed for a few months, which we are thankful for during um, this downtime of not being able to have other events right now. Uh, that's gonna help our, our revenue line a little bit, try to get back on track to recover. Katie, take us back to March of 2020. Y'all are cruising along, you're planning for your 2020 event and the world just goes off the rails. What are you thinking as you start to see the news about the pandemic and then major events in our industry start to cancel? Well, I was pretty optimistic at the beginning. I really thought that this was gonna be a couple month issue and we would get it solved. And I was at that point in March and up until May, I was still thinking I was gonna have my huge concert on the 4th of July. I was bound and determined to have that event. Um, and then it came out on the right at the 1st of June that that was not gonna be feasible. So we waited until the last minute to really see how long this was gonna take an effect. And then we were sure that we were gonna have a fair and that I was, you know, with being in the first weekend of September, we really thought we would, we would make it there. And when it came down to it, we got close, we made contingency plans. We knew we wouldn't be able to have the mass stuff. So we focused on, okay, what can we do? Can we have a livestock show? You know, that's just the agricultural exemption, essential piece of, of the event so that we can get the kids to be able to sell their animal projects that they raised all year and they, they wouldn't lose out because they were at that point, the number one priority the only thing we could control. And then it came down to it about 
right the day before we had a fair board meeting to finalize our livestock show plans, um, we got a new announcement from the state and the pub public health officer um, that we were not gonna be able to move forward with anything in person. So that plan went out the window and that night we scrambled on the fair board meeting to go fully virtual and which included the show aspect of getting the kids' um, projects judged and, and then getting them sold as well. So it was an adventure for, for everyone, but um, man, so fair people are awesome though with their support and their way they're able to turn around and get something done, especially when it involves the kids. Um, we really have a great 4-H program here too. And with their ability to, you know, they were limited on what they could do because of, of state laws with youth in those programs because of the pandemic, but they still have some amazing staff that were able to pull through and get the educational pieces done and really help these kids get through something completely brand new so that they could exceed when it came to uploading their virtual um, projects, so. So it, it seems like, you know, just like many of our fairs, because you were later in the year, you were kind of holding out hope that you could pull something off, but eventually, you know, it comes down to the point where you've got to pull the plug on the fair as it was going to be. Was that decision made finally made by you and the board or did that decision come down from the state? We kept discussions open frequently with local public health and watching state regulations, of course. But when it came down to, okay, this is, this is where we're going to have to land. I mean, it's basically the advice that was given to us as we made the decision um, in late July that we were not going to be able to have a full fair. So that's about when the time we went down to the livestock show and that gave us a month to get the livestock show piece ready. And then it was, um, you know, not a week later, that first week in August when the, everything changed again and we weren't able to have an in-person livestock show either. So that's, you know, kind of the way it worked. But for the most part, we, we tried to make the decisions ahead of time. But from what was being advised, we were just trying to lean really heavily on our, our local um, people for, for answers and um, kind of waited to the last minute and did all we could to make sure we, we had to do what we had to do. What kind of emotions are you going through as, you know, little by little, this whole project that you guys were, all of our fairs, you spend a year working on these things, sometimes more than a year in advance, you're working on them. What kind of emotions are you feeling as it's just falling apart? You know, for me specifically, I was, um, I was disheartened that I was just more worried about the effects that weren't going to just be on our local communities, but all of our fair partners too. You know, you can see what this is going to do to the vendors, to the entertainers, to our carnival. And it's like, you really worry about what well, are those people going to be able to be there for us when we do open back up? It's, it's so hard. And, you know, of course you're worrying about your kids and, and your locals too, and getting them taken care of. But that was, those were other things that came to mind because if we don't have our partners to move forward in the future, it's not a fair anymore, you know, it's just a livestock show. So you really need all the pieces of a fair to be able to keep moving forward as an industry. Um, we can't sustain just on, just on the agricultural piece, you know, we need all of it, even though agriculture is, is the main component and tradition of why we have fairs and should be highly valued you know, you, you need everybody to make it work. And I, so I really hope 2021, we can get up and going so that our partners can get back on their feet 
and, and all the other fairs who are struggling as well so that we can bring our industry back. I agree. Were you all able to get creative with other means for revenue generation? I know several fairs attempted, you know, drive-in movies, drive-in concerts, et cetera, fair food experiences. Did you all try anything like that? We were going to attempt a, um, a drive-through food festival. Um, the only thing working against this, unfortunately, is our um, public health office has one of the highest um, fees for, for food permitting in the whole state. Wow. Um, which, which is shocking for, for our area. And it's, it's been hard to navigate. And that's something we try to work on consistently on a local level, because as a fair, we understand the importance of food vendors, um, but our local food people who do food events all year round, um, you know, like three times a year or something like that, they also struggle and are going away. So it's, it's really hurting a lot of different aspects. And so we try to fight um, our local departments um, and try to work out solutions for that, but we just haven't made progress. So with, with that being so risky and not done before, um, people, vendors, and I don't blame them, vendors weren't willing to try to take that risk if they were really gonna make money with the fees being so high. And, and so we had to, we had, we couldn't move forward with that idea. Um, we did partner with, with the city who has a park right next to our fairgrounds. Um, to host drive-in movies. So they did all the organization and did that. And we just opened up our, um, some of our parking area space for them in conjunction with, with their pool and park um, right up against us. And we were able to host some drive-in movies with them, which was a lot of fun and great to have a partner um, to help do that. Made it really low key for us. We just have to offer the facility and have it ready. So, right. I mean, we've spoken with a lot of fairs who've tried a lot of different things some worked in one area, some didn't work in another. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to everybody though out there who's a fair planner who in a lot of cases, you all were doing this on skeleton staffs, you know, staffs that might've had 40, 50, 60 people now had 10 because of layoffs or furloughs and they still had to try to put something together. So I give a lot of credit to everybody in the industry who's trying to figure out how to plan and what the future is going to look like. And speaking of that, you know, hopefully by the time September of 21 rolls around, this pandemic is well on its way to being over with. In the meantime, you're still in the middle of a pandemic, but you got to plan for that show. How do you go about doing that? You know, it does. It takes a lot of moving pieces and, and it has been uh, wearing on me with the whole factor. Everything's so um, you know, you can't make decisions, every, you don't know what's going to happen. And I am an organizational planner. So it's been very difficult. But yes, you have to move forward with something at some point. Um, I'm very fortunate. I have an amazing fair board who um, they are a working fair board and volunteer so much time and they all have different areas um, of the fair that they are responsible for. And so I at least have them where we can partner closely together to make decisions and have ideas and move things forward. So I can lean on some of their decisions um, and direction where they want to see things go. So I get to work with 18 of those great people um, to keep things moving forward and, and plan as much as we can and best possible. But it does take a lot of moving pieces and especially when things keep changing. <laughs> It can be a real challenge and things do change a lot. I know here in New Mexico, it seemed like, you know, our governor would set gating criteria. And every time we met one of those thresholds, she'd change it again. And we wouldn't, you know, we were told if you do a, 
then we can start to open the economy back up. And we would do A and she would say, well, actually you need to do B and C too. And so things constantly kept moving. Yes. What's um, what you guys up there in Washington, you were ground zero really for this in the Seattle area when it first came on shore. What's the current state of your government response there to COVID in Washington? Are you still locked down? What's the, where are you guys at? So we're currently um, still pretty locked down actually as of um, today, we are seeing a little bit less, but not really. We're still very, very much shut down. But today was the first start of a new plan that was just uncovered. Um, originally, our county was moving forward through the, um, the pegs pretty quickly. We, we were in a, a four-phase program last year, and we were into phase three, where we, where we got a lot more kind of freedom in a way, not a ton. We could have events up to 50 people. So I don't know how much freedom you call that, but we were in phase three. Um, unfortunately, now with the new plan that our governor has um, released is a just a two-phase plan and everyone starts in phase one and have four serious metrics you have to meet in order to bump up to phase two, which is pretty restrictive still. There's not really any freedom in phase two either. Um, it's very little. Uh, the only problem with this is that he actually grouped people by regions instead of counties. So our county um, being as as great as it was at meeting metrics the first time, we are now linked with the three of the worst counties on the east mm. side of our state, um, which never got out of phase one of last year's plan. So that's going to be really difficult for us to, to manage. And so that that plays a huge role is that it's not just our responsibility as a county. We know kind of what we're going to struggle with based off of those counties' reputations on handling the pandemic so far. So that's that's frustrating because it is going to hold us back, but um, it also, I guess, helps a little bit know that, you know, we're not going to, it's going to be slower than what we had all hoped for. And at least we know that to keep, to keep working on it and don't get too excited, I guess, at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think for us here in New Mexico, back Thanksgiving time, um, I think it was somewhere around Thanksgiving, the governor released this new red, yellow, green um, gating criteria. And one of the metrics was, I may be misstating this. So anybody listening, if you say, oh, he's wrong, then just go look at the state website for verification. But it was something to the effect of we couldn't have more than eight cases per 100,000 people per day average over a two week period. And I think some, I think the news, um, local news went and analyzed it. And it was something like Albuquerque, which has about 600,000 people was not allowed to have more than 53 cases per day on average over a two week period. Up to that point, when she said that, I think throughout the entirety of the pandemic, they'd been averaging like 86 cases a day. How do you do that? I mean, somebody analyzed the full thing and said, in order to get us to green, it could be something like 27 additional weeks before we'd ever make it. It's just such a high bar and it's very frustrating. I, I really want to believe at their hearts, our government officials are acting within the best interests of their communities. But as you see the goalposts keep getting moved, boy, it gets frustrating. Yeah, I would say so. And we've, we've analyzed quite a bit up here too, and especially um, working with different legal teams um, and everything like that. It's very obvious too that there's not a lot of common sense built into these plans, um, you know, being allowed to do one thing, but not the other, you, you know, I can't have an event 
with people riding horses more than five people, but we can have Costco open with hundreds of people in it the same day they had a breakout of 146 employees. They didn't shut down for one minute, but 146 employees came down with COVID and they got to stay open. Meanwhile, you know, they're given restrictions that they're supposed to be at 25% capacity. They're not operating at that and no one's shutting them down. Sure. So it does hurt to be the little guy and be in a town with a lot of small businesses and friends who run those small businesses and see how they're being affected. Um, the goalposts are not, um, they're not attainable and they're not equally, you know, followed by all the players. Um, oh yeah. Especially, especially, especially when we see some of these big wig, you know, governors and mayors and, and senators and whatnot that, you know, Hey, your restaurant has to be closed, but I'm going to go ahead and open this fancy restaurant and, and let me have fancy dinner and no mass. And, you know, I, I, I want to avoid the politics of all of it as best I can. It's just, it is frustrating. And I think one of the things that has hurt me, and I don't want to seem like a weenie about this, but being spending a, almost a year now being told we're non-essential kind of hurts because y'all in the, especially in your end, your fairgrounds aren't, weren't non-essential when you had fires burning Washington, California's fairgrounds weren't non-essential when they desperately needed barn space for animals to protect mm -hmm. them from that fire. It's not non-essential when, you know, they need disaster staging and linesmen down in Florida to prepare for a hurricane, exactly. but all of a sudden, Oh, you're non-essential. Well, we're all essential. We're all part of this economy. Yes, exactly. I couldn't agree more with you. You know, one of our guests that we had on earlier in the season, Linnell Smith, who's the entertainment director for Sydney Royal Easter show. She said that she has treated the last year as a grieving process. And when she told me that it kind of hit differently because I think, you know, what we do as a collective, as an industry, it's very important to all of us. We work very hard on it and to look at it as a loss and to treat it as a grieving process, just, it kind of hit differently for me, I guess. What do you think that we can do collectively as an industry and as individuals to help build back up and encourage everybody else in the industry? That's a great question. Um, I feel like the industry has already tried so much to try to be there for each other and get each other through. I, I guess, and that's one of the reasons why I love this industry and wanted to be in it was because everyone has each other's backs and we're all trying to gather resources to help each other. And I know we all struggle with different things locally that we can control. Everyone is affected differently, but I do have hope for us that, you know, our, our passion and our strength of who we are as the people of the fair industry is not going to change. We are going to stay strong and resilient through this and still be there for each other. And we will all come out of this on the other side. And if we lose some or some fall behind, people are going to be there to try to help pick them up and get them going again. Because I just, I know that's, that's the whole character of who we are as, as fair people. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if you think about it, we're probably in the best position to be able to start having events again. You know, I think we were prepared for it before, um, you know, shopping malls were prepared to reopen before most businesses were. Cause if you look at our history, we've had to deal with pandemic issues. We've had to deal with swine flu. We've had to deal with avian flu. We understand how mm -hmm. to keep people safe on our fairgrounds. Right. And yet for the most part, we're not being given that opportunity. 
And Marla made a great point when I had her on. She said, you know, it would be nice if we could establish, you know, a nationwide standard, because why is it that, you know, Texas can go ahead and put in mitigation strategies, very similar to what we've, we've always done with these issues. And we can pull off an event and have not have any sort of tangible change in, in the curve. Mm -hmm. And yet you got places like Colorado that say, well, if your event centers more than, I don't know, 10 or 12,000 feet, you can only have like 150 people. Well, what if your event centers a hundred thousand feet or 500,000 square feet or a million square feet? That's a, there's plenty of space in there to be able to be physically distant from each other. And they're not being given that chance. No. And they are, I mean, fair, fair grounds. They, they are, they've been doing this forever. We've, we've put in the emergency You're all your managers now have such extensive emergency management training um, because of programs that like the IFE provides. I mean, it's amazing the resources we have out there, but this is what the game is. And this is what we've been doing. We've been prepared for something like this. And yeah, the data shows from the large events that have been able to happen, even in the last couple of months, that, they, that there's been no spike or, or some big release of, of cases, you know, it, it shows to proof that if it's done with the correct processes and in the right environment, you can have gatherings and events and keep that going because, you know, people, people need that in their lives for emotional well-being as well. Yeah, I've started to wonder uh, over the last several weeks, you know, for those of you listening, we're recording this here on January 12th. And uh, it wasn't a week ago that we saw a riot at the United States Capitol. We've spent a year watching riots and um, civil unrest all across this country. And obviously, there's some real reasons for that. I mean, people were very upset by what happened with George Floyd. People have been upset by the election. But I got to wonder if one of the underlying things is that we've been forced to be locked down, not social, not going to the gym, not going to the movies, not going to the theme park, not going to the fair, not going to the park with our kids, all the stuff we do on an everyday basis as humans, as Americans, to work that stress out. And so I wonder if a lot of this unrest we're seeing, that there's some level of it that is, we're being bottled up and this is how we're reacting. Right. Because I mean, the only thing people have to do is be at home and be on social media or different news outlets gathering the information that they want to gather and that's that's the only thing they have to worry about or focus on um and that there's no outlet of release of a distraction or anything else to try to bring light and positivity um back into our lives right now yeah it's really difficult and and getting into social media you know the beginning of the season coffee anderson and i had a chat about it um spoke to angel moore this same discussion um so many people are commenting, as Cafe calls it, on visual trauma. They're engaging with visual trauma. And then that Facebook algorithm just says, oh, I'm going to put more of that in your feed. And so all you see is um, it, it becomes a, its own eco chamber. you know. And I understand politically how that happens. If you're on the left, you engage with that stuff. And so you know, all of a sudden you see all this left, left, left wing stuff. And then it's the same on the right wing. And people just get caught in this bubble and it's mm -hmm. like I try to be more thoughtful when I go in and engage with stuff on social that I like I like right now that Steve Cohen has bought the Mets and and our baseball team looks like it's going in a better direction so my <laughs> feed's got a lot of baseball stuff in it right now which is kind right. of nice yeah. um 
do you ever, do you pay attention to that when you're doing social? Are you that focused on it? Like when you see garbage come across your, your feed, are you commenting on it or are you just telling it to hide the post and just moving on? I'm, I'm pretty much a hide and move on. I really do try to, especially, um, you know, that algorithm story definitely works on TikTok, let me tell you. And so as soon as I come across something political or something, I don't care, I scroll as fast as I can. And then as soon as I see a cow video, I just like the heck out of it. Just give me the cows and the ranch <laughs> <laughs> and those TikToks and maybe a few sport videos or something like that. But, um, you know, I really do try to, I understand the algorithm game. And when it comes to different things on Facebook and different things. I mean, I try not to interact um, with the certain things I like, and but you do you do want to try to you know it's it's important to interact with the stuff you do like so that you keep seeing that kind of content. And people need to be more mindful, I think, of those interactions and and just try to focus on on focusing more on the positive things that you can control. And that's one of them is is you know go through your social media and and really clean it out. So yeah. It, it takes a little while. It takes some effort. But if you just stop commenting on the politics, if you're a pro-Trump person, stop commenting on pro-Trump and anti-Trump. Just stop it. Leave the politics alone. Comment on your favorite hobby, your favorite music artist. Go leave a post on their thing. Comment on something they did. Comment on your favorite baseball team or your football team. Or like you said, show me the cows. Yeah. You no, know, and, and I think that can clean feeds up really, really quickly and help change, you know, help benefit your mental health. How is this year affect? We talked about business and how it affected the fair, but personally, how has this pandemic affected you? You know, it has definitely been a challenge. Um, it's an adjustment, but that's what our lives are, and especially in not only the fair industry, but I'm very familiar with it in the ag industry too. Our lives are constantly changing and being challenged to do new things and innovate, etc. So I tried to look at this as this is a challenge I could learn from um, and handle. And there are some positives that have come out with this. Um, I've gotten to spend a lot more time and, and build my relationship um, with, my, with my two um, stepkids that, you know, two sons from, from my boyfriend that live with us full time. And I am also the homeschool mom and I get to do that whole fun thing. So that's been an experience in it, but I've really enjoyed our time. Um, even with as frustrating as homeschooling can be on top of an eight hour a day job, <laughs> but you know, it's getting to spend more time at home. I usually run pretty hard and I'm involved in so many things that I'm traveling all the time and, I've just tried to really enjoy and making the most of it of being home and getting to spend time with my horses, you know, trying some, some new hobbies with roping or something like that. Um, and just trying to enjoy a little bit of a slower year. I think that's, I've tried to take a healthy approach in that way. Just focus on what I can control and make the most of it in, in that chance and, and use it to, to do something new and take a breather. I think that's a great way of, of approaching the pandemic. You know, you've got time to try new things, to get maybe a little bit more time on the things you love the most. Um, everybody who knows you in the industry knows how big you are with, with you know, horses and, and you know, that that kind of environment. Are they, uh, I'm curious, are the, are the stepkids, are they into the, the horses and the ag side of things? Yeah, they actually... Um... 
they've been showing pigs the last couple of years, but I finally got them convinced to show cattle now. So we, we have steer projects and um, that's a lot of fun because yeah, we get to be home and spend a lot more time with the animals and they're getting to learn. And it's just really exciting for me because I loved showing steers, um, cattle and horses and stuff growing up. Mm-hmm. And that I'm just excited that they get that opportunity now, but it also gives me more drive as a fair manager to like, we need to get these fairs going again, because I want these kids to experience what it's like showing them in the show ring at fair, no more virtual stuff. Right. I'm ready to get them there because th- those experiences in person for those kids are so different. I was just thinking back, like for myself, um, if I was to experience that when I was that age and not have a fair, I can't even imagine what that would have done to me, like to my developmental stuff now, because that stuff really impacted me of who I am today. Um, right. I'm a strong believer, and this is why I love this and why I wanted this job, is that these kids need these experiences, and I'm here to make those happen for them. So I have that motivation. I have my own two boys. I'm worried about making sure that they can get back involved, and so I want to work just as hard um, for anybody else's kids as well. Yeah, it, it. I watch all across this country the the 4-H and the FFA kids, and I understand deeply how, and, and I'm not even involved in them. I'm just on the sidelines watching. I understand how deeply those programs impact the lives of those kids and their families. And I'm with you. We need to get this, get the ball rolling and get these kids back in a, in a show arena and doing their thing and getting these experiences. Yep. Cause the impact is definitely not even close when it's on a virtual level. You need yeah. You need the in-person and you need the competitive drive and just that understanding and the, the whole emotions and experience of fair is so crucial to those valuable life lessons. Yep. I agree. Katie, we're just about out of time. I'm glad you could be on the show before we go though. Everyone who comes on the show goes through a little speed round of questions. Okay. So have you listened to any of the podcasts yet? Have you, have you heard the, the speed rounds at the end? I haven't heard the speed. Run. I've listened to little parts of different ones, but I haven't had a lot of drive time being locked down in a pandemic. That's, to my that's, that's funny. On another episode, we were talking about that. I'm looking at my analytics and from season one that I did while we had fairs back in like, I guess, 2017, 18, yeah. I'm really good analytics and my analytics were down probably 60%. And I'm like, I'm putting out great content. What's the deal? And I was talking to somebody who goes, we don't have the drive time. So what do you mean? He goes, most of our podcasts within the industry are listened to while, especially on the entertainment side, we're making eight hour, 10 hour jumps or five hour jumps between fairs. Yep. And I said, Oh, that makes sense. So I'm pretty sure that by this summer or, or maybe into the fall, as we start getting going again, I'll see a spike in listenership all of a sudden. Oh yeah. They're like saved. Like they're building up. We've got plenty to listen to. Yes. We'll we'll go up. (laughs) All right. So here are the speed round questions. Number one, favorite ride at the fair. Ooh, I'm going to go with the zipper. You and Courtney Conkle, I believe, both said the zipper. Yeah, Courtney. <laughs> Boots or sneakers? Boots. Best concert you ever attended? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, probably going to be... Oh, shoot. I've been to so many, so many good ones. This is a, this is a speed know, round, Katie. Not a take I your time round. Good concerts. Okay, I'll just say... Um, the last concert uh, was Tracy Lawrence um, was the first 4th of July concert I got to put on in 2019. And it was pretty awesome because he just released the Made in America song. And that was absolutely like, I would just get so excited and heart pounding and my patriotic. Um, right. 
themes glowing. So anyways, that was pretty cool experience. All right. Three more questions. Would you rather drive a car or a truck? Truck. Yeah, this is that's like the boots or sneakers one. Like I knew what you were going to say on that. For an easy one. <laughs> First celebrity crush. Ooh. Um, now you're giving me a hard one again. Speed round. Speed round. Okay. Um, Liam Hemsworth. Got it. If money is no issue, where is the first place you would travel after the pandemic ends? I would really like to go to um, Scotland and Norway. Interesting. It's both where my heritage and family lines are from. So Excellent. Excellent. Good enough reason for me. Perfect. Katie, if, if folks want to reach out and get in touch with you about all things fair, where can they do that? Um, you can find me on Facebook I'm, and Instagram at Katie the Cattlewoman with a K. Um, but you can also feel free to shoot me an email at katieporterfield at gmail.com. Um, that's my personal email. So that's that's an easy way to reach me if, you, if you're not a social media person. Awesome. Katie, it's always a privilege to talk with you. Sarah and Nate and I are sending our best to you all and your team. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for the time. Really good to visit with you. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.